The following message was recorded as part of the morning worship celebration of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church in Eatonton, Georgia. More information about the ministries, staff, and worship offerings of Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church can be found on our website at www.lopc-pca.org. So if you have your Bible this morning, the Gospel of Luke in the 24th chapter is where we're going to be spending our time. Uh, We'll be looking at some other texts as well, but we're going to jump into it here. Um, Luke's Gospel, the 24th chapter. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one on the uh, pew rack in front of you. Um, Let's stand and hear God's Word. Luke chapter 24. This is on the account of the Emmaus Road, starting in verse 28. Speaking of the disciples that Jesus had been um, journeying with, Luke says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished out of their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Beloved in Christ, this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, who are we? To understand the marvelous depths and riches of your word. It is only by your spirit. It is only by your grace that we comprehend anything. It is only by that same spirit that our eyes have been opened and our ears have been unstopped to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would that same spirit come now? Rest heavy on this place. So that it may not be said that it is our wisdom, our comprehension, our understanding. It's all of you. We pray for the one who preaches. Forgive him his sins, for they are many. We want to see Jesus in him only, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So I want to tell you a story this morning about a little boy named Johnny. Now, little Johnny grew up in a town, probably not unlike this town. Probably grew up going to a church not unlike this church. And little Johnny, one day, finally heard and understood the gospel. His eyes were opened. He realized that he was a sinner. That he was uh, hopeless and helpless before a holy and righteous God. And he cried out to Jesus and he said, help, you're my only hope. And in that moment, Jesus heard his prayer 
and took up residence in Johnny's heart. Now, because Johnny had been raised in the church, one of the things that Johnny had seen done countless number of times was that thing that we're going to do today, a table furnished with bread and wine. And Johnny was really, really excited because finally, now, he could come, he could eat, he could partake and have communion with the rest of the church. It was a very big day. The family was there because they knew it was a big day too. But this was the problem. Johnny never really got what was happening at the table. And so all of that excitement, all of that anticipation from his first communion, the next time communion was served, it wasn't there anymore. And Johnny knew this was supposed to be a very special time. And it was supposed to be a time of of deep significance. And it just didn't feel as significant as it did the first time. And months and years followed. And that special feeling diminished and diminished and diminished. Until one day, Johnny had grown up. And all of a sudden now, communion was just a thing that the church did. It frankly made the service longer. And that special feeling was gone. Now, I don't know about you, but you probably could have just as easily um, substituted my name for Johnny's name. And maybe yours as well. So here's the deep and abiding question. We need to ask ourselves, what is actually happening here at this table? Not because we're making it up, but but what do the scriptures teach? What do the scriptures teach? What is the church believed? What does the church teach based on what God has revealed in his word? There's a quote that's in your um, sermon outline, and I want you to read it with me now because it's a longer quote. And I think it encapsulates some of our problem and some of Johnny's problem. This is written by a guy named Robert Weber. Robert Weber was a professor at Wheaton College uh, and then uh, some years later taught in various seminaries. Speaking about communion, this is what he said. Far from being a mere memorial or empty symbol... The ancient fathers of the church saw bread and wine as a disclosure of Jesus Christ himself, through whom we see the reconciliation of God and man, of heaven and earth, and of all things. But enlightenment rationalism has succeeded in taking the focus off what God does at bread and wine and placing it on what I do at bread and wine. In rationalism, I must make table worship a a source of spiritual nourishment by what I do. I must remember. The more intense my remembrance, the more my spiritual life is nourished. And this is the question he poses, and this is what I want to pose to us this morning. Is it really true that I nourish myself at the table? Or are we moderns missing something here at the table? something that God may be doing to nourish our spiritual life. So 
We're going to look at the text this morning in Luke 24 and ask ourselves the question, what is actually happening here? What does the witness of scripture tell us is happening here? And I want you to consider three things, and they're sort of like links in a chain. They all go together. The Lord's Supper or communion is a divinely appointed meeting. It's a divinely appointed meal. And it's a divinely appointed means. Again, it's a divinely appointed meeting. It's a divinely appointed meal. It's a divinely appointed means. Okay? So we're going to dive in and consider what this is and what it means. Now, I love this narrative in Luke's gospel. Previously, the passage that we didn't read this morning was Luke appearing to the two disciples. One of them is unnamed. One of them is Cleopas. Okay? And while on the road, they're traveling with what they presume to be a stranger. He asks what's wrong. They say, haven't you heard? Are you the only guy in town that doesn't know Jesus Christ was crucified? Look at what Jesus says to them. After they had said that some had gone to the tomb and found the tomb empty. In verse 24, Jesus says, oh foolish, actually verse 25, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, the things concerning himself. So we see sort of three snapshots in this narrative in Luke 24. We see that Jesus is the point of the scriptures in verses 13 through 27. That a real man with flesh and blood rose from the dead. You see that in verses 28 through 43. And that because those two things are true, there is now a cosmic reconciliation underway. God is is uniting, restoring, rebuilding all things. I love it that in Revelation 24... I'm sorry, in in Revelation, uh, now I'm going to forget the reference, 21.4, we see, behold, I am making all things new. Jesus didn't say, I'm coming to make all new things. He said, behold, I am making all things new. In this passage, we see a divine meeting, a divine meeting where people just randomly journeying down a road come face to face with the risen Jesus. Now, whenever God meets with his people, he always shows himself to be the Lord and King worthy of worship and praise. I want to give you two examples of this from the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to give you the references. In Genesis 15, we see God revealing himself to Abraham. Abraham was promised that he was going to be the father of many nations, that that fatherhood was going to come by descendants as many as the stars in the sky, and a promised land would be his inheritance, and that there would be a seed that would come through his line. How did God reveal himself? Well, in Genesis 15, he caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. And in that dream, God revealed himself and actually struck a covenant with Abraham. Moved through the covenant, and God said, the promises that I have sworn... I swear them on myself. If I don't follow through with what I have said, may what has happened to these animals here in Genesis 15 happen to me. 
There's a second place where we see God divinely meeting and disclosing himself to his servants. In Exodus chapter 6, this is the place where Moses encounters God at a bush that would not be consumed by fire. And in Exodus chapter 6, Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? Remember I said this last week. God said, tell them I am sent you. But a little bit later there in Exodus chapter 6, God says, I will be their God. They will be my people. God is revealing part of his character. He's revealing himself in this divinely appointed meeting. I mean, think about it. Who walks down a road, looks to your right, sees a bush on fire, not being consumed, and the bush talks to you? This does not happen every day, but it was a divinely appointed meeting between Moses and God. And we see here in our text, Jesus now is revealing himself to be the point of all the scriptures. All those promises that God made to Abraham, all those promises that God made to Moses, to the prophets, to David, to Israel, are now fulfilled. In Jesus Christ. Why are they fulfilled? Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Jesus Christ could not be contained by a Roman cross, a Jewish trial, or a cold borrowed tomb. He is risen. And he's now showing himself to be the Lord and King to those whom he has met on the Emmaus Road. Now, why is this important? How does this help us understand communion. To answer that question, a story. About seven and a half to eight years ago, a study was undertaken by the National Study of Youth and Religion. It was the largest study to date of its kind. Sociologists by the name of Christian Smith surveyed thousands of teenagers through written uh, surveys and then did in-depth qualitative interviews with 300 teenagers. This was a highly anticipated body of research because coming out of this body of research, they were trying to understand why is it that kids can go through being raised in religious homes and then leave the church as quickly as they get out of high school. Gone. No longer in church. There were three takeaways from Dr. Smith's research. Children in America, of those surveyed, a vast majority of them found Christianity, the religion they saw their parents and grandparents living and practicing, to be nothing more than moralistic, therapeutic deism. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And what that means is, moralism, God only cares that I follow his rules, and his rules are there to hamper my life, not to enhance my life. Therapeutic. They only saw their parents engage with their faith when something was wrong or when they felt bad or when life was uncertain. And then lastly, deism. And this is the point for this particular um, illustration. Deism is the belief that there may be a higher power, but... He is disconnected, far off, 
and does not care about the day-in, day-out workings of the world. He, like a sort of a watchmaker, he set the world in motion and just let it go on about its business. Well, it's important for us to know that the God of the Bible is not a faraway, distant, disconnected God. He is a real, personal God. He took on flesh. Heaven and earth met in Jesus Christ. And he is intimately concerned that his disciples, his people, his church meet with him, fellowship with him, and know him. Not in abstract ideas. Not in simply memorizing truths. But in actually knowing a real person. Just as you and I would have a real conversation with one another. And so as we think about the Lord's Supper, the first thing I need you to understand is it's a divinely appointed meeting. This table is not an abstraction of distant events from long ago. This is not a time to simply remember. It's not less than that. But it's more than that. It's not a time to simply sit there and, and, and think about a Savior who is gone. No. We proclaim a Savior who is risen and by His Spirit is here. So we can fall into the habit of trying to explain away the mystery. And so what I want to do this morning is is not um, step over what the Scriptures teach, but I don't want to say less than what the Scriptures teach. This is hard. This is mystery. We can't rationalize it. We can't explain it. But we believe it's happening. So it's a divinely appointed meeting. And we saw this with Jesus. His disciples said, um, he acted as if he was going to go on. And he said, no, I'm going to stay back. I'm going to wait. But then we get to verse 30. Jesus sat down and shared a meal with them. Now, This text in Luke 24 is not a text that commonly is used as a Lord's Supper text. You know, where we hear the words of institution like I'll say in just a few minutes when we go before the table. The texts of the Bible that, that really talk about communion directly are these. We see it in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. Mark chapter 14, verses 22 through 25. Luke chapter 22, verses 15 through 20. And then there are two passages in 1 Corinthians. Paul records um, communion passages in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 18. And in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. I know that's a lot. The passage that I want to draw our attention to this morning is a peculiar little passage in 1 Corinthians 10. If you turn there with me now. It's of particular interest to us in terms of seeing the meal of the Lord's table as an intimate encounter with Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, 
Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Now verse 18 is of particular importance. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What? What does that mean? And why is that there? Now, a couple things. Um, I know that several of you grew up in Roman Catholic backgrounds. And so for you, you get a little nervous when you read this passage. Because you begin thinking, oh no, the Catholics believe something and it was wrong. Well, it's true that the Catholics tried to faithfully understand what was happening in the Lord's table and took it a bit too far. But some things, this is, this is one of Luther's favorite expressions. Something's misuse does not negate its proper use. Let me say that again. Something's misuse does not negate its proper use. Just because the Catholic Church may have misused or misappropriated a text like this doesn't mean we get to take the text out of the Bible and says it no longer applies. So we have to figure out what this, what this mystery is. Now, you remember in the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system, right? There were uh, a lot of different sacrifices that God instituted so that sin could be covered temporarily. All right? Now, we're not gonna, we don't have time this morning to get into all the different types of sacrifices in the Bible. But there's one that's a peculiar one that I want to talk about this morning. The sacrifices in the Old Testament system were, uh, were, were different. Um, you have different sacrifices such as the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, and so on and so forth. You'll find these listed in Leviticus chapters 1 through 7. But we have a danger as New Testament Christians. We can tend to say that because the sacrificial system was fulfilled in Jesus, that the sacrificial system can be forgotten. It doesn't apply anymore. Well... That's not totally true, is it? Because of what Paul said right here. He's likening the Lord's Supper to a sacrifice that was done in the Old Testament. What was that sacrifice? That sacrifice was the peace offering. The peace offering. We're going to talk in just a second about what that means. Even though the Passover was the time where Jesus offered the Lord's Supper, the Passover doesn't actually convey all of its meaning. Stay with me. It's going to make sense in a second. Okay? The peace offering, what is it? Dr. Jack Collins, who's a professor at Covenant Theological Seminary, the seminary of our denomination, has done a lot of research into the sacrificial system. I want you to listen to what he says about the peace offering. The burnt offering, not the peace offering, but the burnt offering, all the meat was consumed on the altar. It all went up in a big fire and the meat was offered to God. But the peace offering was different. Look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Fourth book in. Numbers, Deuteronomy. It happens to all of us. In Deuteronomy chapter 12. That was a test to make sure you are paying attention. Deuteronomy 12, verse 7. And here Moses is talking about the uh, peace offering. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, And you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. What does this mean? In all the other sacrifices, the people didn't get to eat anything. It was all for God. Occasionally, the offering would be for God and maybe the priests. But in the peace offering, the people and God shared a meal together. God, in his temple by his spirit, was there. And in the temple courts, the people shared a barbecue with God. Not in theory, but in actuality. God was there with his people. In the other sacrifices, the worshiper received nothing back. But in the peace offering, most of the flesh was shared out by the worshiper with his family and friends, just make, thus making the sacrificial meal a joyful barbecue. Others have said it this way. In the peace offering, the meal was the principal feature. The meal was the point. It's like when you go to a fine restaurant. The meal is the main deal. The linens may be nice and the company may be great, but the meal is the point. And in this meal, God shared it with his people. In the peace offering, the meal is the principal feature. And if this represented um, the most intimate fellowship with God, friendly intercourse, house and and table companionship with him, what does that mean? Friends, the idea of God breaking bread with his people is not a new idea. The idea of God being intimately connected with his people in a joyful feast is not a new idea. And if you go back with me now to 1 Corinthians 10, this is what we believe Paul was pointing to. Paul could have said, are we not all participants at the table? But he didn't. Instead, he said, are we not then all participants at the altar? Well, in speaking to a Jewish audience, the only way that would have made sense, the only way that it would have made sense for the priesthood of God's people, all believers, to be participants together at the altar, sharing a meal with God, was at the peace offering. Because at the peace offering, you didn't have the peace offering to make atonement for sin. You had the peace offering Because atonement had been made. You had the peace offering because atonement had 
been made. Look at what happened back in Luke 24. Jesus, the risen Jesus, took time and shared a meal. He had just preached probably the most amazing sermon they had ever heard. He started with Moses. And through Moses and all the prophets, he disclosed how all of the scriptures, in fact, pointed to himself. And yet, friends, it was when he sat at the table with them and broke bread, then their eyes were opened. Then they saw, this is him. Word and table go together in a very profound way. So we've said it's a divinely appointed meeting where God is not an a distant, far-off, impersonal God, but he's an intimately connected, real God. It's a divinely appointed meal because as we see in Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, there was one sacrifice in, in the reality of an atonement accomplished that God and his people ate together. And this was the, how the Apostle Paul saw the Lord's Supper. This is not a mere memorial, as Dr. Weber said in our quote at the beginning. This is not an empty symbol. This is a place where God and man at table are sat down together. So lastly, it's a divinely appointed meeting. It's a divinely appointed meal. And it's a divinely instituted means. Now look. Back to the original question that little Johnny asked. Back to the original problem that Dr. Weber posed in our quote this morning. Who is it that gives communion its special meaning? Is it us or is it Jesus? Look at the text. After Jesus broke bread and gave it to them in verse 31, what does it say? And their eyes were opened. It didn't say, and they opened their eyes. It said, and their eyes were opened. Jesus worked at that meal to disclose himself to those people. Friends, this is good news. Because every time this table is set before God's people... Every time these elements are set apart by prayer and thanksgiving. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 18, that we are participating in the body and the blood of Jesus. Not because the elements themselves become it, but because the elements themselves are so inextricably tied to who they point to that they might as well be them. Now, Why is this good news? Because God wants to sustain us in our wilderness journey. This this table doesn't save you. If, If these disciples had not been disciples of Jesus, sitting down with him and eating bread together would not have opened their eyes. Well, it may have if Jesus wanted it to. But the scriptures wouldn't have made sense. They wouldn't have been seeking Jesus. They wouldn't have been mourning his death. They wouldn't have been looking for his resurrection. This table doesn't save you. But friends, this table does sustain you. I want you to remember little Johnny's story. 
the grace of this table and its effectualness, that's sort of a word, the way this table is effective is not because you prepared yourself well enough. You probably didn't. It's not because you're sorry enough for your sin. I'm not. I think I know maybe 4% of my heart. There's a whole other 96% that I don't know what's lurking down there. So it's not because you're prepared enough. It's not because you're sentimental enough. And it's not because you're sorry enough. No, friends, what if this were not an empty table of a, of a memorial to an event past, but a glorious banquet and a testimony of a risen Jesus who by his spirit is here right now. Atonement has been made and it's been made by his blood. And because of that, we are enjoying the peace offering with God and us. Perhaps then, little Johnny would not have worried so much about whether or not he felt special but would have instead rested on the fact that because of Jesus' yes and amen in his life, he knew he was special, and he would expect God to work in that place. Let's pray. So, Father, these are deep things. I know for many people this may be the first time they've heard or considered the linkage of the Lord's Supper to the peace offering. And as we prayed in the beginning, would your spirit do only that which it can do, which is come. Come and fill our hearts, open our minds. Let us ask questions. Would this start us on a journey of exploration to see what it is that you are doing in your church as word and sacrament are joined together? Help us now, we pray, as we go before the table. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.